This has been an amazing past three days, hasn't it? Yes. It's been uh, refreshing for us, just sitting in God's presence. And I think as Pastor Mark said, too, learning from each other, each and every conversation. You know, we are all part of the body of Christ. And as missionaries, as pastors, whatever our role is, um, God just wants us to be obedient. And pray for us as we do go to Ethiopia. We were sharing at breakfast this morning many, many documents and hoops to get there. So would you pray that God will, in the midst of busy schedules, I believe he can help things to be easier. And that would be just a prayer, that God will cause all this paperwork to just come together and every detail that needs to happen. So would you pray for that as we've stepped out in obedience you don't worry about all those things but then when they come upon your path <laughs> then once again day by day isn't it life is day by day decision by decision that we trust in god so it has been so great being here thank you for loving on us and just allowing us to to participate in this prayer and fasting thank you amen i did owe that pastor mark thank you for the Wonderful hospitality and the great leadership you're providing this district. We, this district is blessed. Think over the history of the leaders God has put here, the mantle on Brother Clarence St. John and now on you. Thank you for just continuing consistently leading. Thank you to this district for providing us with a speed to light vehicle that has hauled us all over to the most remote parts of Kenya. The tires have worn out, but the body stayed together. And... Uh, so we're, thank you. Thank you for your prayers and your investment in us. This has really been wonderful. I'd like to share with you briefly this morning on the subject, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And I follow that with the question, what is your attitude and your obligation to the gospel? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. So then what is our attitude and our obligation to it. I'm reading from Romans chapter 1, 9 through 20. Romans 1, 9 to 20. God, whom I serve with, listen to this, whom I serve with my whole heart in preaching the gospel of his Son is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. Kind of redundant. I, I'm praying for you, remembering you at all times. I pray that now, at last, by God's will, the way will be made open for me to come to you. I long, listen to those words, I long with my whole heart. I mean, that the intensity... I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. And that is, kind of steps back a little bit, that it may be mutually encouraging by each other's faith. Isn't that amazing? The apostle said, I'm going to go give you something, but I'm, I'm there and I feel that way about this conference. We've tried to give, you have given back so much to us. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, 
that I planned many times to come to you, but I have been prevented from doing so until now in order that I might have a harvest among you just as I have had among the other Gentiles. I am obligated both to the Greeks and the non-Greeks, both to the wise and to the foolish. That is why I am eager to preach the gospel also to you who are at Rome. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek or the Gentile. For in the gospel... A righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And the wrath of God is being revealed. Notice he uses that expression being revealed twice. The, the gospel is, is uh, excuse me, verse 17, in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. Verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against the godlessness and the wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since we, that what could be known about God is plain to them because God made it plain to them. Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that they are without excuse. I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. We're living in amazing, strange, challenging times. I think we all know that. There are so many beliefs. Uh, we're living in what's called postmodernism, the pervasive philosophy, at least in the Western world. And postmodernism claims that there is no one absolute truth. They claim that. They claim that all religions are equally valid and every opinion needs to be listened to until you uh, confront them on theirs. You know, that there, are, there is no meta-narrative. There's no big picture. We're not really going anywhere. We're just sort of swimming in circles. There, there is no truth, no answer to address the issues now, let alone the consummation and our eternal destiny. I think we know that. So where in the world does the gospel fit? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God. Well, that's one among many beliefs. God bless you. I think probably wouldn't say that. So I, I, I want us to really consider the truth of this amazing epistle and these words, I am not ashamed of the gospel in the 21st century facing the universities and the educational systems and postmodernism and all that is out there Will we dig our heels in the ground standing on that foundation of love and truth that we sang about and openly, graciously, lovingly, winsomely declare without compromise, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I think about Paul. What, what an interesting fellow. He was radical. 
He was radical, but he was completely sincere in his dedication as a Pharisaic Jew. I mean, today we would call him a fundamentalist. We would call him a terrorist. But he was acting out of love for Yahweh, the God of the Jews, the God of creation, out of his commitment to the covenant, at least the old covenant. And he looked at anybody and anything that presented a different message as an enemy, and it was his responsibility, he felt, to silence them, imprison them, and murder them. And that was all out of, he, he was worshiping the true God out of the old covenant and just in Chris, in, uh, commi- totally committed and zealous to confront any kind of religious system that countered what he believed. And yet we know the story. On the road to Damascus, the enemy, the one that he believed was a liar and a heretic and a false teacher, met him on the road the one that he didn't believe was the Messiah that hadn't been raised from the dead, and there he was. Can you imagine what those next three days were like when he was there in that little room blind? Out of his vast knowledge of the Old Testament and his training as he started connecting the dots and thinking of all those Old Testament passages that were fulfilled now by Jesus and his resurrection... And then, you know, dear brother Ananias comes. What an amazing man of God. That would be pretty scary. Walk into the room of the Pentecostal Osama bin Laden and call him brother. And lay hands on him and heal him and see him filled with the Holy Spirit. But, you know, from that moment on, I mean, there, there's hardly a pause. That same radical nature that was used to destroy the church changes. And now, rather than being the adversary, he's the apostle. And whether, rather than trying to destroy, he is building and he is supporting and encouraging. And from the very beginning, he's missional. He's going, he's proclaiming, he's confounding anyone in opposition to him, lifting up the name of Jesus. What a change. He summarizes at the, toward the end of this book that we're looking at this morning, the book of Romans, his ministry. And I want you to turn there just for a moment. Romans chapter 15, verse 18. Because he's kind of coming to the end of one phase of ministry, and he's looking at making a major change geographically. I read in chapter 15, verse 18, He says, I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done, by the power of signs and miracles, through the power of the Spirit. So from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, Now, Illyricum, a few decades ago, was Yugoslavia. That would be kind of the area of Serbia, Croatia. So if you think geographically, the Mediterranean, start over on the far eastern side, Israel, kind of the uh, southeast corner of the Mediterranean, 
just start working your way around through Turkey, go up into uh, Greece, and keep on going up former Yugoslavia. I mean, he is saying, I have ministered the gospel in this whole entire region. From Jerusalem to Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known so that I would not be building upon someone else's foundation. As it is written, those who were not told about him will see. Those who had not heard will understand. And that's why I was often hindered. Remember back in chapter 1? I wanted to come to you before, but I was hindered. What was the hindrance? He was doing ministry elsewhere. He didn't feel he could pull away and be released to come to Rome. But now he's covered every area, either directly or through disciples and sending people. Now he feels like I could put a period on that chapter of ministry and I'm coming to you. But that's not where he's going to stop. Verse 23, 15-23. And now that there is no more place for me to work in these regions. And since I have had a longing for many years, I want to come and see you. I'm planning to do that when I go to Spain. I hope to visit you while passing through and to have you assist me. You know what that means? Missionary pledge cards. (laughs) On my journey. And I will enjoy your company for a while, and then I'm going to head to Spain. See, Paul, Paul writes this letter. He's, he's not, getting ready to make a little trip. He thinks it's going to be pretty quick down to Jerusalem. Give them a very, very important offering that was gathered by the Gentiles for the Jerusalem church. But then he's going to head back to Rome and then from Rome on to Spain. The ministry on the eastern side of the Mediterranean, he's pretty well covered it. Now he's ready to go west. I mean, and at this stage in his life, he's probably someplace in his early 60s or so and he's saying I got a whole lot left in this engine and now I'm going to the west and he wasn't getting on a 747 so this letter comes at a critical juncture he has heard reports about Rome he did not plant that church he had never been there himself But he is the apostle to the Gentiles. And he believes God has given him the authority to be able to speak into churches and give them guidance and direction and correction. And he has heard things that are both good and concerning about the church. And it's out of that occasion that God guides him to write this amazing, amazing letter. So think about what he is saying as he introduces himself and as he pushes through the content of what is in this letter. Having ministered all over, going to go to Jerusalem. And that all, that's also a clue about some of the content in this book. Here is the apostle to the Gentiles who has received Gentile money to go and give to Jewish Christians. I'm jumping ahead of myself a little bit, but there's two major concerns in this book, and they both have to do with reconciliation through the power of the gospel. One of them is vertical, and one of them is horizontal. 
And that's why this book is so relevant for you and me. We must be reconciled to God. Every person, Jew, Gentile, rich, poor, Jew, Greek, of one culture, of another culture, socioeconomic, it doesn't matter. There's only one way. I know what postmodernism says, but the gospel and the truth is there is only one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Paul is totally, totally convinced because he met the man. But there's the other direction of reconciliation, and especially in this book, Jew and Gentile. That the power of the gospel not only reconciles us to God, friends, but the power of the gospel must reconcile the people of God into one. There's diversity, but there must be unity. And even the symbolism of that offering being received by Gentiles on behalf of the church in Jerusalem, his concern is, will they receive it? And in receiving that offering, will the Jews receive the offering from the Gentiles? And I've talked about that before. And those kind of attitudes, will that serve in a reconciling kind of a way that we're in this thing together? We are brother and sister. It doesn't matter if you are a Jew or a Gentile. But he's heard about Rome. And I think there's a a few very important little factors that I want to help you recognize as we look at this book. He says, I'm going to be going to Rome, and I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Well, as as strange as the gospel is in our current 21st century culture, what do you think it was like in Rome in the first century? They had their array of gods among the Romans. They had all of their Greek gods. Caesar claimed to be God in manifest form. You got the Epicurean philosophy, living for pleasure. That's what life is all about. You got the Stoics, living the disciplined, hard life, keep in line, do everything right. You got this massive empire that has conquered and devoured the imperial powers of Rome and and the pride of being this dominating force in the world. And in the midst of all of that, you go back to Acts chapter 2, as it gives the listing of the nations that were there on the day of Pentecost, it says, and there were some there from Rome, both Jews and and, uh, uh, apostles or uh, proselytes, proselytes who had come to faith. And they must have, it must be that group who encountered the gospel, they went back and founded the church. Now, there's one other little factor that I know you also know. If you go back to Acts chapter 18, verse 2, we we are first introduced to Priscilla and Aquila. And we are told that they had been in Rome, but they had been expelled under Emperor Claudius. And if you go back and read history, it says that there was some kind of uprising among the Jews, and that's just kind of a generic term there, the Jews who were living in Rome over some fellow whose name was Crestus, who was probably Jesus Christ. And that so upset Claudius, he expelled all the Jews out of Rome. It was around the year A.D. 49. And from 49 to around 54, there were no Jews in the city of Rome. 
Now that, to me, I, I think this is the key. I'm trying to lead up to what's, what's the occasion? What's going on? Why does Paul say what he's going to say? I, I personally believe when Paul writes this letter, it's a little bit after that, maybe 54, 55, Jews had begun to come back because Claudius died. And then the order that he had ceased. The Jews began to come back. They wanted to be in that, that economic center of the world. And they're beginning to come back. We've already got house churches. But up until now, the last few years, it's been completely Gentile. But Jews are coming back. Born-again believing Jews and non-believing Jews. I personally think what was happening was some of the, the, the believing Jews are coming in, but they are being tormented by the teachings of unbelieving Jews who, like Paul used to be, are preaching radical obedience to the law, the sacrificial system, go back and live the way we did under the first covenant. And here's why I think that, and I find this in chapter 2, verse 17, Romans 2, 17. He says, now you, if you call yourself a Jew, I think the Jews were coming back into Rome. They were going into the synagogues, going into the house churches, and they were preaching the Old Testament gospel of sacrifice. It, Jesus wasn't part of that. If you call yourself a Jew, you rely on the law, you brag about your relationship to God. If you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, you see that? These Jews are coming back in, they feel like, you know, we, we know that we got the law. We're, we're descendants of the patriarchs. We have an inroad to God. They're coming in and feeling like they're the guide for the blind, a light for those in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, the teacher of the infant, because you have the law, in the law, the embodiment of knowledge and truth. And I think Paul, in over where he is, has heard what's going on. He's heard the testimony. He's heard the wonderful advance of the gospel. And yet now, in historical circumstances, there is a danger infiltrating the church, confronting not so much the Gentiles, but especially those who were Jewish, wanting to suck them back to the old way, undermining faith. And it's in the midst of that kind of a situation, Paul who had been one of those kinds of people, radically transformed by the gospel, writes this letter to address both of those directions for reconciliation. All people must be reconciled to God, Jew or Gentile. And you know, you know the, 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 this letter well enough to know, eventually he's going to say, all have sinned. There is none righteous, not even one. No Jew, no Gentile, nobody can stand upright before God. We are lost, we are condemned, we are in bondage, we are in slavery to sin. Everybody. But then he also says, and there's only one way, but that way is open to all, to the Jew first and also to, and also to. It's a both and. Everybody is welcome in the same way. So you, you Jews who were out and you're coming in and you're trying to mislead, he is going to attack them because that's not gospel. 
And I, I'll, I'll throw this out once again. Just forgive me if this doesn't agree with your theology. Would you look at two other, well, one other passage especially in chapter 6. I see, I, I, think, I think we have undersold the power of the gospel. Paul writes in Romans chapter 6, verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with that we should no longer we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died is freed from sin go down to verse 11 in the same way count yourself dead to sin alive to God in Jesus Christ therefore therefore everybody say therefore Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desire. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin, your eyes, your hands, your ears, your brain, your legs. Don't offer any part of your body to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought up from death to life. Offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master because you are not under the law but under grace. Romans chapter 7 is one of those passages that probably every one of us will have a different opinion of. Some of us say, well, that's Paul in his pre-Christian life. Some say that's Paul in his post-Christian life. And he's struggling with sin. Man, I identify with that because I struggle with sin. And Paul says, I just, you know, I, I can't do what I want to do. Yeah, that's me too. That is not where Paul's coming from. Forgive me if you disagree. In the argument that Paul is making here, he is talking about those Jews who have come back into the church and they're saying, the power that we have to overcome sin is in the law. And when Paul talks in chapter 7, he is talking about his own life before he encountered the power of the gospel. And he is saying, I can identify with where you are because that's where I am. With my mind, I want to serve God, but I find another power controlling my life, keeping me from doing what God wants me to do. That's why you got to go back to chapter 6. Otherwise, 6 is completely contra is contradicted by 7. But if you see Paul saying, I've been set free. I'm no longer a slave to sin. There is more than just good news in the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation to transform our lives. Hallelujah. I'm glad that Jesus... Forgive me. That, you know, we, we've made all of this sort of a justice courtroom scene, forensic, where God looks at us from his holy seat in the judgment throne, and we're filthy, we're vile, and he says, I know you're still a filthy, dirty sinner, but I declare you righteous, and, and it's, just, it's just words, it's nothing. But I, that's not Paul. 
Paul says there's a power in the gospel that took me when I was vile and evil and controlled by the power of sin and I was a slave to sin. And when he declared me upright, he made me upright. He not only said I'm right, he made me right. He changed me. Didn't Paul himself say, if anybody is in Christ, he is a new creation. And so when I, when I read 6 and 7, I think Paul, it's an argument to the Jews who are infiltrating the church, wanting the people to go back and rely on the law as though law and obedience was a defense against the powers of enslaving sin. But he has come to experience freedom in Jesus, in the power of the Holy Spirit. No longer let sin reign in your mortal body because of the power of the gospel. Sorry, I should calm down. But it's true. So, I come back to the text. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Wow, you're not ashamed when there's all these other gods? You're not ashamed when Caesar walks around proclaiming to be God? You're not ashamed when some people philosophize that pleasure is the end game or that disciplined and mind and rational science is where it's at. I am not ashamed. Put it in the positive. I am proud of the gospel. I'm proud of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? What is the gospel? I'm going to try to ask four questions of this text. What is the gospel? For whom is the gospel? How is the gospel received? And what is your attitude toward it? What is the gospel? I know that we all say the gospel is good news. And I say it is good news, but it's a whole lot more than just news or information. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power, the dunamis. The power of God. The way I, I think of it in a metaphor, an analogy, I, I think of they're, they're building this massive, massive dam up in Ethiopia. Uh, it's called the Millennial Dam. You know, so they build these huge walls with the gates, and then the water keeps coming in from the river, the Blue Nile, and it gets deeper and deeper and deeper. And at some point, they open up those gates, and the potential of that water force begins to flow through those gates and turn those turbines and create energy. I think when I think of the gospel and what Jesus did in his death and resurrection, he threw open the gates. Hallelujah. And the power of the gospel flowed out of his life. And anybody who will jump into the stream is transformed. It's not just a little bit of a washing. It's not just a declaration. But it is a transformation of freedom from the power of the law, from slavery to sin. We are changed by the power of the gospel. I'm not ashamed because it's the only power that transforms people's lives. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And even in Rome, where it's so powerful militarily and in every other way, Paul says, I'm not ashamed 
Uh, and it's not that he's boasting about himself. He says, I'm going to glory in the cross, glory in the resurrection, glory in the eternal life in Jesus. I will boldly proclaim to anybody, anywhere that I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it is the power, the power of God that uprights fallen, broken, injured, vile people and makes them sons and daughters of the living God where we boldly can come and cry to God, Abba, Father. What is the gospel? It is the power of God more than just good news. It reconciles us. We sang it today, and I thought as we were singing, Oh, praise the Lord who paid my debt. Romans chapter 3, Paul says that God sent Christ to be our reconciliation because He is a holy and a righteous God. He couldn't just ignore. He couldn't just forgive without paying the penalty of sin, but He offered Jesus to do it. Jesus comes, He takes our sin, He takes the wrath of God on Himself that we can be born again and transformed by the power of God. What is the gospel? It is power that reconciles all people to God. Think about who's saying this. One who is a terrorist, a murderer, angry, changed and transformed by the power of God. He says over in 1 Timothy, remember, I'm the worst of all. But as an example to anyone, he took me in his grace and his mercy. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God. It reconciles. It transforms. It changes. It makes people who were fallen upright. It makes people who were controlled free that they can live in the spirit and obey God. Does that mean we don't fall? Yeah, we do fall. But don't use Romans chapter 7 to give an excuse. It's because you and I are not living and walking in the Spirit the way we have the possibility of doing it. Lord, forgive us. Lord, empower us. May I walk. May I sense. May I allow the power of the gospel not only to upright me and transform me, but to obey you. In fact, that's the theme of this, this epistle from chapter 1 to chapter 16, the obedience of faith. See, when we encounter the power of the gospel, we repent. We turn to God. He transforms us so that we can obey. We can do we can go, we can live the way he wants us to live. But not only does he transform us, transform our minds, Romans chapter 12, but he wants to transform that, that horizontal dimension between Jew and Gentile. The latter part of the book, he talks about the weak and the strong, talks about the Jew, the Gentile, even who have come to faith and he says, there's no place for arrogance in this thing. We are one body. Yeah, we have many different members, but we must live in unity and love and serve one another and be a witness to this massive city and empire of Rome and we today, wherever God has placed us. The power of the gospel not only reconciles us to God, but the power of the gospel has the potential of reconciling us to the people that are around us. 
Don't we need that kind of power as well? And we're not just going to say, well, I'm going to start loving those kinds of people. It's going to take the power of the gospel. But the power of the gospel has the capacity, the ability, the potential to bring around those changes that we can love the Somali. We can love somebody different than us. We can love the Asian Indians that God has brought, the Native American Indian, whatever the, the politically correct terms are. We look at people and we see them as people made in the image and likeness of God with an eternal destiny and we love them and we serve them and we will not allow anything to bring division through the power of the gospel. What is the gospel? It's the power of God. It exposes the flaws of any other system. Nothing else is going to work. You know, governments can pump, pump in billions of dollars to try to help us get reconciled. Hey, let's just fall at the altar. <laughs> I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Let it bring change. Let us wait and let him heal and open our eyes and our understanding and our love and to bring forgiveness. What is the gospel? It is the power of God. Second question I ask is, for whom is the gospel? And Paul said it there in that opening chapter. He said, I, I am under obligation to Greeks and non-Greeks. And he's probably talking about language and culture. The elite, the noble, those who understood the Greek language, they lived in that particular culture, but then there were those who didn't, didn't know Greek, didn't understand that culture. I mean, think of that major mass of varieties of people just in Rome, let alone in the entire empire. But Paul says, I am under obligation because the Lord has saved me. I have an obligation I have an obligation to take the power of the gospel to the Greek and the non-Greek. I think then he's talking about educational status, wise and foolish. Those who've been educated, those who aren't. Those who are literate, those who aren't. I mean, in these little statements, he is throwing the net out and saying, the gospel is for everyone. He says in, in verse 16, salvation to everyone who believes, Jew and Greek. Who is excluded? The gospel is for whom every man, every woman, all have sinned. But Jesus Christ in his death and the opening up of the floodgates of grace and glory and power are ready to flow out to anyone on this continent. Will we, we be part of that? Will we first experience it and see it flow to others? What is the gospel? It's the power of God. For whom is the gospel? For everyone. For everyone who believes. Then he answers the question, how is the gospel received? He tells us it is by faith. Verse 17, for in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed a righteousness that is from faith to faith. Faith. Not just faith in some abstract God, but faith in a God who does what he promised he would do. Our faith is in a God who promised, he talks about it in chapter 4, Abraham, an old, 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 old man. 99. And God comes and says, guess what, Abe? You're going to have a kid. And if that's tough, Mama is 89. 
But you know what faith is? Faith says God said it. He will do it. My faith is not in just saying the right thing. My faith is in a God who made promises and he does what he says he's going to do in his time and his way. He will do it. He promised a seed. He promised a Savior. He came in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He promised resurrection. Jesus was raised from the dead. We are saved by putting our confidence and faith in the God who said, I will save you. I will redeem you. I will take your life and transform you. And I will use you as my representative. My faith is in the God who promised and he does what he says he's going to do. What is faith? You said it, Lord. You said it. Whosoever will may come. Anyone who confesses Him as Lord, believes in His heart, God has raised Him from the dead. I mean, it's just amazing that God has done it all and then He throws open the door and says, if you'll come, if you'll believe, I will allow that power to begin to raise you and transform you. Out of that obedience and that faith, uh, He begins to change our lives and redirect us and use us that we not only are forgiven and made to be His children, but we are living as His earthly representatives in obedience. Lastly, what is your attitude toward the gospel? I mean, we've all been threatened and intimidated. Paul would say, I'm going to go to Rome and I'm encouraging you people who are already there in this letter in the face of every other type of presentation, religion, philosophy, lifestyle, do not be ashamed. Be proud. Be proud. Not in anything you are, but in what God has done in you through Jesus Christ. Paul says, what's my attitude? I'm going to serve him with my whole heart. I am under an obligation to take what he's done in me and to make it known to others. I am eager to come to Rome so that I can have a harvest and see many, many more experience the, the grace and the power of the Lord. There is an attitude of, I've received it and I'm free to go give it and no one will ever intimidate me even if it is unto death. I'm not ashamed. William Carey, we call him the father of Protestant missions, Right around 1800, you know, he was a shoe cobbler. And he began to gather information, what little he could, pre-internet, about the world and people and statistics. And he made maps out of scrap pieces of leather and tried to put the countries in numbers. And one day he was meeting with his Baptist, excuse me, Baptist missionary board who totally were committed to predestination. And he said, you know what, we've got to do something here in England about getting the gospel to these remote places of the world. And the mission board looked at him and said, young man, sit down and shut up. If God wants to save the lost, he will do it without your help or ours. William Carey didn't sit down and shut up. A few years later, he 
his wife and his small son got on a boat and went all the way to India. And during their service, his wife died. His son died. He remarried. His second wife died. But he stayed on. He translated the Bible into three major Indian languages. He planted the church in a place where it had never been planted before because he was not ashamed. Bringing it much closer to home in the 1950s. I'm telling you stories you know. Jim Elliott and four young men who graduated from Wheaton College heard about an unreached people group, the Alka Indians down in Ecuador, Amazon River Valley. And they said, we're going to go. Long story, but they found a little sand barge where they landed a plane. They didn't hardly know the language. They never really were able to present the gospel. And they were speared and arrowed to death. Jim Elias said, he is no fool to give what he cannot keep, to gain what he cannot lose. Just a few years ago, actually in 2020, one of our churches in northern Burkina Faso, one of our AG guys, he was there pastoring with his wife and five sons, Boko Haram, walked in the church with machetes and they said, you will deny the Lord or we're going to kill your sons and you. He said, I'm not ashamed. And they cut off the heads of his five sons and his wife and then they killed him. I'm not ashamed. Pastor Muhammad is a man I met just a year or two ago in eastern Ethiopia. A really amazing story. He's a Muslim. He's an imam overseeing three mosques in remote areas near Somalia, eastern Ethiopia. And he came, he heard the gospel, and he came to faith. I don't know all the details, but he came to faith. And I met him, he's telling me, he said, I said, so what do you do? He says, well, I'm still an imam. So I go to my three mosques every Friday, and I take my Bible, and I preach the gospel to the Muslims in those mosques. Some people got really upset. They came to his little hut and they wanted to set it on fire and burn him. They threw matches and torches and nothing would light. And the people were so shocked, they moved and they came to faith. So I'm I'm talking to him. This is what's so wonderful. The gospel's not complicated. And I said, Brother Muhammad, I, I love Islam. I try to understand. I say, how did you come to understand Jesus is the Son of God and He's part of the Trinity? He just looked at me and said, Brother Doug, I don't understand all of that. All I know is Jesus saved me. He changed me and He's given me life and hope. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. May God give us a gentleness and a grit that will enable us to stand any place, anywhere. And that doesn't mean we have to have a foghorn and scream in people's face. But we will stand there and say, I'm not ashamed. Because it is the power of God and there is no other option. There's no other way to be reconciled to God. 
And there's no real other effective way that's going to reconcile us with the confusion and the division in our society and in our world. But in the gospel, there is hope and there is power to change our lives. What is your attitude? What is your response to this great gospel message? I am not ashamed. He is no fool who gives away what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. God, thank you. Thank you for the gospel. It got every one of us. It changed us, and it's still changing us. That power raised us from the dead. That power has liberated us from the enslaving control of sin. That power can enable us to present the members of our body to God as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. I'm not ashamed. Lord, and may I feel the obligation to those of every strata, every corner, every people. I'm not satisfied for Eastern Europe. I want to go to the West. I want to go where the gospel has never been preached. I'm under obligation. Speak to us by your Spirit. I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed. In Jesus' name.